I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 31st, 2016. On this week's show, we'll talk about the World Series, where the Indians have a 3-2 lead over the Cubs as the teams head back to Cleveland. And unless something really weird happens, one of them will break a very long championship drought. ESPN's Sean Sale will be here to discuss his new book, The Murder of Sonny Liston, which reports out the theory that the heavyweight champion was killed by Vegas mobsters. And then writer Jamile Hawaja and player Kevin Caldwell, a.k.a. Kevin Hustle, will join us to tell the bizarre, amazing story of how a team of unknown Americans made it to the Kabaddi World Cup in India. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. With us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. Hello. Let's get right into Whimsy Watch because we have a lot. This week, I have an all-time record for the most people sending me a the particular moment mm-hmm, of whimsy. Yeah. Six people wow. sent me the dildo on the field <laughs> at the Bills-Pats game mm-hmm. in Buffalo. The headline on the website Mashable was, watch an NFL official awkwardly kick a dildo off the football field. <laughs> but Good my headline. question is, how do you kick a, a dildo non-awkwardly? Yeah, what's the graceful way? Actually, mm-hmm. with the with the dildo, you have to do it uh, the non-soccer style kicking. That's the way to do it. I was going to say, ask a kicker. Yeah. Ask a kicker. We can kick anything <laughs> not unawkwardly. That's a good reality show. <laughs> and like with bit note, I'll kick that dildo for in three steps. <laughs> I'll kick it in five. If, I'm surprised there isn't a video up of, uh, of a kicker kicking a dildo. If mm-hmm. you could only have one kicker in NFL history kick a dildo for yeah. a, what, the winning points and whatever game would require that, who would it be, Stefan? Hmm. Would it be Stinnerud? It's always Stinnerud. It's Vinatieri, though. I mean, you know, he's shown that he can kick a dildo. I mean, a football indoors, outdoors, short distances long. 
with great accuracy because you really want to go for accuracy. Hmm. I think Mark Mosley would do well with kicking the dildo. Oh, I just, yeah. Uh, I don't think that, on. Yeah, you don't go for distance. You want to go straight on, yeah. Mm-hmm. But of course... I can see that. Uh, our, our old friend Bjorn Nitmo with the dildo. <laughs> uh, the Seahawks uh, or Al Greco. Thomas. It's got to be Nitmo or Greco. <laughs> Del Greco. Al Del Greco with <laughs> Del Dildo. <laughs> uh, the Seahawks Earl Thomas got a 15-yard penalty for hugging an official. Mm-hmm. After he ran back a fumble for a touchdown, that's whimsy. Mm. I would have given him the penalty because not pictured. He had on his person a dildo. Let's <laughs> let's a hug and tie. more let's a hug and more grope at that point. I know all the locker room talk about groping officials, but when it becomes real, it's just sad. There was another tie, twenty-seven, twenty-seven. There was almost a second tie. Josh actually texted me his disappointment that that we were a minute and 50 seconds from a second tie in one weekend and three in two weekends, which would have been a, a record you're for in a, a weird season. Pos- you're in a weird position when you're rooting for a tie because just anything that happens is bad. I think we're going to see more ties. Really, anything positive that happens. We're, we're, we're going to have to see more ties, right? Because of the uh, field uh, f- offsetting field goal rules. And that came into effect in the tie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it almost came into effect. It wasn't the Thursday night game, but there was a... Sunday uh, night game. Yeah, Sunday night game. Dueling field goals. Do you think that the English crowd was more amenable to a tie, you know, having been fans of their football? I think the English crowd was 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 mystified by why a guy couldn't kick a ball 30 yards. <laughs> to win the game. It's oblong. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to advise our colleague Leon Nafak on how to become an NBA fan. This is one uh, area that I am expert in, how to become an NBA fan. There has never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. For Slate's 20th anniversary, for a limited time, we're offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. Uh, there's also the Slate Academy, which I've really been enjoying on Pop Race in the 1960s. Best uh, Slate podcast, I think. Present company included. Worth it. Uh, Jack Hamilton. It's good. You like that one, Mike? Worth it. Great. You hear the songs, you, you hear the stories. <laughs> if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash plus. On Sunday night at Wrigley Field, the Cubs won a World Series game at home for the first time since David Lynch, Oliver Stone, (laughs) Susan Lucci, and Donald Trump were born. That is my partial (laughs) list of weird and cursed and conspiracy-minded and white nationalist-inspiring people born in 1946. Mm -hmm. All born in 1946. On the diamond, Cubs manager Joe Madden brought in his closer, Roldis Chapman, to get eight outs on Sunday and the hardest thrower in baseball did get those eight outs. Uh, he held on to a 3-2 lead. He allowed the Cubs to go back to Cleveland for Tuesday's Game 6, down three games to two, with the possibility that they can win the franchise's first World Series since 1908, still alive. Yes, Susan Lucci, also not alive in 1908. I found it interesting, Mike, um, that so much of the conversation in the World Series has been around Terry Francona, and his use of his bullpen and the proverbial uh, correct button pushing. Mm. Joe Madden got into that a little bit in Game 5. But um, before Game 5, Buster Olney of ESPN had written that Francona was essentially having 
a similarly consequential and amazing postseason as Madison Bumgarner had a couple of years ago, which was, you know, the greatest World Series performance by any player in the last couple of years. And I've I've felt the the desire to push back on this a little bit and mm-hmm. just the kind of over praise <clears throat> and excessive valuation of a manager as compared to the players who are actually doing the stuff. Um, how do you feel about Francona and and how we've talked about him and and the managers? That is true. Bruce Bochy, what's your strategy with Bumgarner? Uh, let him pitch as much as possible. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Terry Francona, what's your strategy with your with Andrew Miller? Make him pitch as much as possible. Genius, genius. How do you think of that? I guess. All right. Well, s- let's yeah. be a little more. Let's be a little bit more generous and say that the way that he's used Miller has been unconventional even by postseason standards the way that he's brought him in so early in games and you know compared to how madden had used chapman prior Mm -hmm. to game five you know chapman is not any uh worse of a pitcher than andrew miller he'd just been used less i think he's i think he's worse worse of a pitcher actually I think that I right. think he's that, less yeah, versatile he's, picture, yeah, picture, yeah. right? And he hasn't shown that he could stretch it out over uh, multiple innings, right? And, he's and he's le- let's just say he's less of a weapon, issue. yeah, right? Because he has made it clear he only likes to pitch the ninth inning. He has a very precise um, warm up routine um, that limits, or at least in the minds of his managers, has limited their ability to deploy him in more unconventional situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were reasons for this. But this is all about, isn't this about media narrative mostly, Josh, when it comes to the managers that Francona was doing brilliantly because they were ahead three games to one? No, and I, I don't. Madden's okay. and Mad, well, there is, there absolutely is some process results conversation to be had here but it's also that the indians have a less talented roster than the cubs do and that he has one really great starter in Corey kluber and the other starters are not don't have as as solid records this year or in their careers and the fact that they cut their fingers on drones and the fact that the indians have done so well and that he's been such an activist in the moves that he's making you have to you know give him credit or at you know, it seems like there's causation there. Yes, and not a Larusa activist with a, a stream of 35 different relievers, which almost becomes like a spasm instead of a strategy. So I, I do think Terry Francona has been great. Uh, obviously, he's been great. Mm-hmm. A great manager doesn't, and even if a great manager makes a mistake here and there, like I guess you could argue he's, since Lindor has been thrown out a couple times, that's horrible. It would seem that you'd want to do whatever you can to steal on Lester, but since it hasn't worked out, you could say not great strategy. Although if you understand that it's process, not product, it probably was a good strategy. But because uh, Francona's moves have been things like, you know, using Brian Shaw to eat up many innings, you know, you're managing ahead a little bit. It's not doctorate level managing, but it's right managing. And we often don't see that on the big stage and in the World Series. And the great thing about the things that uh, Francona does, the the smart things and the things that Madden does is they've been doing it 162 games. We just haven't maybe been paying attention or the people who have been paying attention, you know, who are. To their benefit on the sidelines on uh, on the Fox broadcast, and, and don't you notice that the baseball broadcast, maybe there's a lot more subtlety to report on, but my God, the uh, sideline reporters just give you so much more knowledge than their equivalent in any other sport. That said, these are two great managers who are doing the great things, and maybe the great things are just the absence of the dumb things, but I don't think we could both say that, you know, 
I don't think that we could say that they shouldn't be given too much credit because they're doing slightly obvious things. When no one else does those obvious things, you could be a trailblazer just by dint of uh, doing the right thing as, as long as the rest of your profession is doing the wrong thing. And a lot of it also ha- comes down to analyzing in retrospect the moves that they made or didn't make. And on Sunday night, you can wonder whether Terry Francona left in his starter, Trevor Bauer, for too long in a game where if they had managed to hold a lead or score another run and get an advantage on the Cubs, they might have been able to bring in Miller even sooner than the fifth inning. But the Cubs only scored in one inning. And by the time they would have had somebody warm up, they wouldn't have been able to uh, get in before Bauer had allowed those three runs. That seems illegitimate. I don't know. I mean – it is an argument to be made because in retrospect, an incorrect one, an incorrect one, maybe, but he stayed in and it didn't work out. The next six hitters did put another run on the board. So in game three, it worked in Francona's favor. And when Madden went to the bullpen, he brought in uh, Justin Grimm. That worked out, but long term, it didn't. Game four. Madden didn't pinch it for lackey early on when he might have needed to. Um, he left. Kyle Schwarber on the bench. He brought in Justin Grimm and Travis Wood when they were losing four to one instead of one of their you know, their trio of good late innings pitchers, um, Chapman, Hector Rondon, and Pedro Strop. So you know these things go game to game. Yeah, Mike, I think that Madden has actually been criticized for not making particular moves. The Schwarber one, leaving him on the bench and not having him bad earlier um, in game four, I think it was. So it's not like they're making all of the obvious moves. But back to my original premise, I feel like Francona has been managing ahead in all of these games. The Indians are 10 and three. I'm looking at the Indians pitching stats for the postseason. They have 10 different pitchers who have ERAs under three. And Francona is putting these guys, maybe he's putting them in position to succeed. But everyone that he's put out there, especially on the mound, has done really well. And again, to his I keep kind of going back and forth. To his credit, he's kind of pulled guys like, you know, whether it's Tomlin or, you know, Bauer before this game or Kluber. He's kind of taken them out before things start to go downhill. And so I guess that's good. But I guess I just feel that focusing too much on the managers, especially when they make good moves, like with Miller, the thing that makes him great isn't that he like comes in at the fifth inning because Terry Francona tells him to. It's that he's, you know, has this amazing slider and is not allowed any runs. And it's his performance and it's Corey Kluber's performance and it's Lindor's performance. And I think because the Indians players aren't particularly famous and people know who Francona is and because he's doing all this wheeling and dealing, I just think it's a little bit of a shame that so much of the attention has gone his way and not to like, you know, these Cody Allen or Brian Shaw or, you know, the players who are doing the job. Or Mike Chernoff, who put the team together. And I think a lot of credit goes there, the GM, along with Terry Francona. A lot of teams wouldn't trade for Andrew Miller when you have a great closer like Cody Allen. A lot of teams would say, well, 
we don't want to take Cody out of his uh, closer spot, which they didn't, but they found a way. Miller was a great guy to work with in this regard, or in this regard. But a lot of teams would take a pretty good closer from a non-contender and slot him into the eighth inning role, and it wouldn't work out. Uh, a lot of teams wouldn't go as headlong on the splits strategy, where you don't have great players per se, but you have great positions because you you know, always do the righty-lefty or as much as you can do the righty-lefty matchup thing. So I think it's a well-constructed team and a well-managed team. And in a couple instances, the players are playing great. And, you know, for all of this, the premise of the Indians winning the World Series is even if Kluber becomes the first guy since Schilling to get his three starts and three wins, you need another win out of somebody. And they got mm-hmm. it. So that, that it was a whole shaky premise that they, you could say, got a little lucky on, but they got it. And they're going to need it again on Tuesday night. The Cubs are starting Jake Arrieta. And who's starting for Cleveland? Tomlin. A lot of off-speed yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> He's been good in the postseason. Wasn't as good in the regular season. But I just want to point so, out that the Indians have not won a game at home or away since Kylie Jenner and Chloe Grace Moretz were born. Uh, great point. <laughs> um, the other thing that... I think is interesting is that during and after the NLCS, the Cubs players said, you know, we're young and this doesn't really affect us. This history of, you know, the franchise not having won the World Series in uh, Susan Lucci's lifetime. That's directly that's a direct Mm -hmm. quote. Um, But it seemed pretty clear that having these like insane (laughs) crowds and the pressure of the moment did affect the players. Um, August Fagerstrom on Fangraphs noted that in games three and four, the Cubs, who are known as a really patient, disciplined team, were chasing um, pitches out of the zone. I mean, Baez is the obvious example, but Chris Bryant was doing it. A lot of the Cubs players were doing it. They look jumpy. Um, and the other premise, you know, Chris Hayes said it on this podcast, other people said it, is the defense doesn't slump. Well, the Cubs defense slumped a bit in games three and four, and it improved in game five. And we can't say with any kind of certainty it was because they settled down mm-hmm. or they steeled their nerves or they came through in the clutch. But it seemed like something was up. They weren't playing their best. So it was good to see. And game five, the team that won 103 games during the regular season yeah. at least played like themselves. And 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 as a spectator, it was good to see the environment in Wrigley Field meet up with the expectations of what we thought it would be. And that was entertaining. I mean, I liked seeing Bill Murray, the cuts to Bill Murray, you know, taking a drink of beer and wiping his mouth and flicking his fingers over his shoulder. Um, you know, they can get a little carried away with the whole take me out to the ballgame thing, but but it was good television, which games three and four were not. Eddie Vedder, he was he was great at take me out to the ball game because of the specific knowledgeable references to David Ross. No one's surprised that Eddie Vedder knows the Cubs. In fact, Eddie Vedder's knowledge of the Cubs is a little annoying. But yeah, he called out the catcher. And there's one guy in particular I want to sing my ass for, and he's number three. He's behind the plate. He may retire, but he'll never quit. Mr. David Ross, I'd like to belt this one out for you. It's his last game at Wrigley. Let's sing it for him. Let's sing it with Harry. Come on, Harry. Oh, one. Oh, two. 
Uh, although poor Vince Vaughn, who uh, grabs Harry's mic just after the Cubs go into, I think, a, was it a seven-one hole at that point after Kipnis's yeah, three-run yeah. shot? Yeah, so mm-hmm. you're dealing with uh, a despondent, friendly confines. Sure as God made green apples, someday Chicago Cubs are going to be in the World Series. Well, here we are. Let's win this thing. Let's heat it up here in Wrigley. Help me sing loud enough so Harry can hear us. Oh, one, a two, a three. I just want to go back to the, the question of will the Cubs be intimidated by 108 years? There's no way to say that this is 108 years. Any club on the big stage in the World Series maybe will react a little bit differently. That alone, it could be, you know, this could have been a 12-year drought. And how, how can you show that the players are acting any The way they play it, it struck me as like a 93-year yeah, drought. Yeah, that's right. Were, it, it, seemed it, was, set, it, it seemed more around 90. the century level of tightness. <laughs> but the other thing is, whenever, you know, so we showed that the famously patient cl- Cubs are chasing pitches out of the zone. When a pitcher has a dominant performance, and in fact, when Kluber does it a different way, which is to the the lowest percentage of fastballs of any start this year, and he has great success, there's going to be a reason for it, right? And it's either swings and misses or pitches out of the zone or or stuff like that. So all we're doing, to my mind, is naming the exact mechanism by which the Cubs were exploited by Kluber. And I get a little annoyed at the idea that, you know, the Cubs need to show patience. Patience is the key. And patience means taking pitches, but it doesn't necessarily. I mean, Rizzo jumps on a first pitch, gets a double, and then all the guys behind him in the late innings of game three fail to capitalize, you know, after taking pitches. So I don't think there's necessarily a correlation between taking a pitch and succeeding. And I don't think that there's necessarily correlation. When you jump on a first pitch, that's seen as a good thing if you get a hit. And when you jump on a first pitch and miss it, that is automatically uh, coded as jumpy. It doesn't have to be that way. I think that's a, uh, that's a good point. Um, also, we- Corey Kluber slider is basically unhittable. Yeah, that helps. Did they mention at all in the broadcast the Chapman domestic violence stuff? I didn't notice it in Game 5. I did not either. They certainly didn't make a big deal of it if they did. Um, what have you thought of the Fox broadcast? Yeah, I'll go through it. I think I think that Smoltz is a great – I think it's great. You know, I, I, I have my problems with Buck. But you know what? From a – just very logical standpoint. He has not done anything to annoy me. He's he's been good. He's you know <laughs> it's a nice deep voice, and he describes the situation. I think Smoltz has been good, and like I said, I think Verducci and Rosenthal would be the or that equivalent in the NFL would be the best and second best sideline reporters in all the NFL. Maybe it's not fair that it's you not, don't right you because don't they allow 60, they have they have like a collective sixty years of daily beat reporting experience. Well, this baseball. would be if you let a Peter King type or someone with that equivalent in the NFL stay on the sidelines. I think it's a few things, but I just think that you know it, NFL executives think that their viewers don't want that level of depth, or maybe they can't. Maybe a, even a great reporter can't glean the kinds of insights that Verducci and um, and Kenny Rosenthal can. I don't know. It, it's something. There's, not, there's just yeah. not time in an NFL game. 
That's not true, time. And too. I think that what, what, what Kenny and Tom do really well is anticipate and they prepare some of those segments. Um, I mean, Kenny is a meticulous reporter and a great preparer of these little short vignettes. And he's figured out how to master that narrative form. Um, you know, the combination of delivering something that has depth and has intelligence and relies on sources and to do it in this little 30 second package. I mean, that's a real skill. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On January 5th, 1971, Sonny Liston's wife found him dead at their house in Las Vegas. She'd been out of town for a while and could tell from the odor that he'd been dead for more than a couple days. The Vegas coroner found heroin in Liston's blood, and the medical examiner said, though, that he died of natural causes. But after a four-year investigation, writer Sean Assale believes the preponderance of evidence points to Liston coming to a more sinister end. His new book, The Murder of Sonny Liston, Las Vegas Heroin and Heavyweights, wins the Josh Levine Award for book title straightforwardness. It might also win other awards that actually exist because it presents new evidence and new theories, and it's a very good read. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Wow, thanks for having me. Of course. It's a really, really fascinating story. And let's start in 1970. Liston was still a fighter then, that June, he beat Chuck Wepner in nine rounds in a fight in Jersey City. That was eight years after he'd knocked out Floyd Patterson in the first round in Chicago's Comiskey Park to win the heavyweight title. And it was six years after he'd lost the title to Muhammad Ali, then known as Cassius Clay, the first of two losses to Ali that the FBI, at least, believed had been fixed by mobsters. So back to 70. Liston is living in Vegas. He's hanging out with what seems like the wrong kind of people. What can you tell us about his life in Las Vegas? Well, as I write in the book, um, in a town of uh, two or three shows a night, everybody was on their second and third acts. And that was especially true of Sonny. Um, you know, he, not only had he come through uh, a, a, um, a period of hate-hate with America in which white America hated him because they thought he was an ogre and black America hated him because they wished that they could have a better representative in the uh, dawning of the civil rights era. Um, you know, Sonny also had then... Um, you know, been disgraced in the boxing arena. Those those two losses to Ali both deemed suspicious. The second one, especially so. Uh, and he had he had been banned from boxing, and so it's only um, in in you know sixty seven or so, three years before his death, that he tries to make a comeback. And you see him in the book having you know, fantasies of one more title fight, like any great champ, but but you know not getting it. And so what does he do? He returns to his gangster roots. And um, what you see in the book is is how he's really careening down a, a very dangerous road. And I wrote it, hopefully, like good detective fiction, even though it's you know stranger than fiction, that you know what's going to happen to the main character. He doesn't. So you watch him kind of hurtling towards the abyss. And he had a lot of enablers in Las Vegas, and he had a lot of enablers his entire life. I mean, Sonny Liston grew up 
in some horrific circumstances, and he was linked to criminal activity from a very young age, as you describe in the book, and he was connected to mob people from a fairly young age. Yeah, and part of this is that when he's in St. Louis, right, he doesn't know anything else. So it's John Vitale, the gentleman gangster, and he's he's breaking legs on a uh, on the loading docks of a uh, you know cement local, and then he is gets so big that he the, the mob in St. Louis can't handle him, so they shuffle him off to the guys who run um, boxing in Philly, right, Blinky Palermo and and. Uh, and his partner, um, Frankie Carbo, and Sonny loves the mob, right? And, and it's, you know, he, he lives large, and he's really, as I write in the book, raised by mobsters, so that when he's appearing in Congress and, and um, you know, he's asked about the influence of, of the mob in boxing, he doesn't see what's wrong. And, and it's, you know, later in his career, I, I write that one of the reasons I believe um, the, the second Ali fight was fixed was that Sonny simply saw it as an opportunity cost. It's what any good mobster would do. And I argue in the book, based on new evidence, and there's a lot of new evidence I'd love to talk about too, that, you know, Sonny had a, thought at least he had a piece of Ali's future earnings, which in 1965 right. seemed huge. Um, and, he thought, hey, what, what, what better than take a dive and just, you know, sit back and cash out these checks? So Sonny never stopped thinking like a mobster. Sean, how should we think of uh, boxing at the time? You've written on pro wrestling, and it's pretty stupid to think of uh, anything regarding pro wrestling as not fixed. So was it half fixed? Was it mostly fixed? Were there boxers who were as on the up and up as golfers? Well, right. So, so first off, this is the time, right, where where heavyweights are the giants that roam the earth, and they're they're global icons, right? So Lewis and Schmeling, they were proxies for their nations before World War Two. Floyd Patterson is the emerging is the face of the emerging civil rights movement. Ali becomes the voice of his generation. So Sonny is uncomfortably thrown into that larger than life series of, of personalities. He's ill spoken. He's he's um, ill educated. And, um, you know, so uh, boxing at, at that level, I think, was, was really more of a spectacle than I don't think anybody was necessarily trying to fix fights. Although, um, you know, Sonny's organized tr- tr- crime ties made him especially susceptible. I think at the lower levels, though, it's, a, it's like anything else. You know, you can, you can match make your way into a fix. You can simply put two, two ill, um, you know, uh, one ill-suited fighter in the ring with another, and, and there's your fix. So the mob didn't always have to explicitly fix, although I do think in the, in the case of the second Ali fight, there were, um, you know, there's ample evidence the mob got its hands dirty. So I'm really interested in the reporting here. And first... How was all of this stuff reported contemporaneously, both Sonny's mob ties and also his death? And then if you could transition from that into how you got interested in the story and sort of thought that there was more to it than what had been written in the mainstream press uh, back in the day. Well, Sonny's mob ties were you shadowed him through his whole career. Uh, during this, during you know when when the second uh, when he loses to Ali the second time the Los Angeles Blairs in the headline that only takes a minute to kill boxing, um, you know Sonny was called to famously testify before the Keith Hour Keith Hour, um, you know um, organized crime he- hearing so Sonny's Sonny's mobling shadowed him wherever he went 
and um, he, he, by the time he gets to Vegas, sort of disappears into the friendly seams of the city. And what I did was, and the good news is libraries are still great places. Um, I ordered the, the Las Vegas Sun and Review Journal for the year 1970, had it shipped to New York where I was living at the time, and, and read every word of every paper until I felt like I was living in 1970. And what that allowed me to do was make connections that might not have appeared necessarily um, you know, obvious to others, the politicians, the crooks, the cops, and those who were still alive, I reached out to, they talked to me, and what I developed was as much a picture of Las Vegas in 1970 as, as Sonny. They, they weaved together in the book because Las Vegas was deeply segregated, and Sonny lives in a white um, suburb called Paradise Pines. I write in the book, it was created to give the illusion of stability in a 24-hour city where dads come home at four in the morning with sex and booze on their breath. And Sonny would wave to his neighbors on the golf course in the morning and at night drive into the, into the deeply segregated west side of town, which had been redlined into civil neglect. Um, it was burning as a result of, of race riots and, and um, you know, the, the black power movement, but Sonny would, would just drink and, and sell drugs there. And you, bridging these two worlds made him a fascinating character to me. And I think by, my idea was not to compete with the great writers who had already written about Sonny, you know, David Remnick or James Baldwin or, or Nick Tashis, but to do my own take on it, which is to take the last year of his life, right, almost entirely in 1970, so you could see that period of time and you could see Sonny bridging those two worlds by driving down the strip in his pink convertible Cadillac. Sonny... Sonny's death seems almost inevitable in, in, a, in, a, in a tragic way. Um, his connections to the mob, his connections to informants, and then this, the nexus of, uh, of corrupt police in Las Vegas uh, almost seemed to sort of preordain that he was going to go down in a bad way. And the, the thing that, I, that, I, that I'd like you to talk about a little bit is the, the, the level of corruption within the police department, because in, ultimately, the main characters in the possible murder of Sonny Liston are these ex-cops and people connected to cops, informants and others. Right. And so I knew I had my book when a, a former DEA agent tells me in 1969 they're sent on a drug raid. And who do they see in this, in this drug raid but Sonny Liston is heading a, a cloud of, of, of pot smoke. And they yell, hands up, everybody. But Sonny doesn't put his hands up, and he starts advancing um, on this federal agent. And mysteriously, two local cops come in and say, oh, we're all friends here, and let Sonny go. And that moment is one of the, is one of the brand new moments never reported before in, my bo- uh, in, the, in the book. But what that does is, because Sonny's the only one who's let go, the, the head um, of the drug ring who, uh, whose house belonged to always believed that Sonny was a snitch. And I do have um, sections in the book where I, I raise the, uh, the likelihood that, in fact, Sonny did have a relationship with the Las Vegas PD. Um, and... What I what I learned was that that uh, that that drug dealer put a contract out on Sonny's life. So one of the things that Sonny has going on in the last few months of his life is that there's a there's a contract um, on his head. The another thing that's going on is that Ali is about to finally get his payday. Fight Joe Frazier. Sonny is making noises thanks to the '65 fight that he's owed a piece of that purse. Well, who the hell needs a has-been fighter, you know, walking around saying he's, he gets a cut of, uh, of, of Ali's purse? So there were a lot of people who wanted Sonny out of the way for that. 
Another thing you've not heard before, but I'll tell you, is that Sonny was the subject of a federal undercover drug operation. Maybe he was an informant for the Las Vegas Police Department, but he was also visited by a, a DEA agent who was about to sting him. They'd already had one meeting. The undercover set up another. And if Sonny had lived, the undercover agent, who's still alive, told me, he was sure that the buy was going to go down, and then he was going to ask Sonny to wire himself up and rattle on his friends. Would Sonny have done that in his, in his shape? Who the heck knows? But that's another thing that gets people killed. All of that, though, was reported before the real turning point in the book. And if you want, guys want me to tell you about it, I will, because it's what happened when I got an unmarked envelope. <laughs> wow. There bum, it is. Bum, bum. Chung. And inside the envelope was an uh, interview that was t- done in 1982, a dozen years after Sonny's death, with a snitch for the Las Vegas Police Department. And that snitch um, walked in with a story to tell, and it was a story, he said, that he knew who killed Sonny Liston. And it was a one-time hero cop who had broken bad. And, and this informant named a name, and in the book I called him suspect number one. And he said, this hero cop took a contract from one of the interested parties who wanted Sonny dead and did the job. Why did that have a ring of truth? Because that hero cop later broke bad and started ripping off the drug dealers he used to prosecute, got himself in a world of trouble. And the last chapter of the book is what happens when I track down that cop and walk to his door and he opens it. I've never had a podcast guest create his own beat of suspense before. I appreciate that. <laughs> that was that was awesome. Yeah, no, I have other sound effects that I brought for you. <laughs> so you report on deep corruption in the LVPD, and uh, certainly mm, those people have left the force, and some of them have died by now, but uh, it should at least raise questions and maybe an investigation into the Las Vegas Police Department. What has been the reaction from them or others? Well, that's a great question, Mike, because I was just in Las Vegas giving a talk in the, uh, about the book, and another of the suspects um, who I chronicle is Ash Resnick, his, uh, a high-powered casino executive who uh, had long been rumored as an associate of the East Coast mob. Um, you know, he had been Sonny's manager, or quasi-manager at least, during the Ali fights, and if anybody fixed that fight, Ash Resnick would have had a role in it. Um, his daughter was not happy with my book. Um, during my appearance in Vegas last week, she got up and uh, she thought that I had um, you know, not done an especially flattering portrayal um, of her father, not surprisingly. Um, but oddly, I say oddly because you might not expect this, but the person whose door I knocked on, the hero cop who broke bad, and um, was long considered the leading suspect in Sonny's murder. Larry Gandy is his name, and he's thrilled. He's thrilled with the book. Why would he be thrilled with the book? Because he's felt like he's lived under a cloud for, for all these years, and he wanted to tell his story. And, you know, his story is, is, it could be a book unto itself, but there's so much going on in my book that it's really just the last chapter. So, curiously, the person who you think would be the maddest at me is, in fact, um, the most thrilled that, that I've put his story out there. As far as others, you know, a lot of people are dead now, but um, the Las Vegas Police Department's also gone through a considerable transformation. Um, but at the end of the day, why did I write this? Because there's no statute of limitations on murder. And I do believe that um, this book is a blueprint for somebody in law enforcement who might want to reopen the case, or frankly, open the case, because there was never a homicide investigation done in the first place. So the standard of evidence in journalism or um, 
just among guys talking on a podcast is different than what would be required in a court of law. I mean, you are very comfortable saying that Sonny Liston was murdered. Um, You argue that the preponderance of evidence points in that direction. You seem to have a pretty compelling case and storyline. And obviously, you know, we must say that if the case was opened, then law enforcement would presumably be able to develop more leads and and find more folks. But a lot of people are dead. Um, A lot there there's, you know, it's been 45 years. What do you think the case would be or how would it sound to a jury in a court of law? Well, I mean, that's, you know, part of this is, is trying to put somebody behind bars if that person's still alive. But also I think part of this is to try to, um, you know, solve some unsolved crimes, um, including, and I, I talk about this in the book, the snitch who walks into the Las Vegas Police Department in 1982, some years later, dies mysteriously um, in his garage in Oregon with um, his motor running. And even members of his family um, consider his death highly suspicious, yet it was ruled accidental. Why? Well, you know, I, this is another thing I said out there. I just think that there's a lot that, that could be uncovered, and whether or not that results in prosecutions or that just inco- results in an era of, of secrets being, um, you know, being um, exposed, I do think it's a worthy endeavor. Shauna Sale is a senior writer in the investigations group with ESPN. He's a correspondent for Outside the Lines. And his new book is The Murder of Sonny Liston, Las Vegas, Heroin and Heavyweights. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Earlier this month in Ahmedabad, India, the Indian national Kabaddi team defended its title in the 12-nation Kabaddi World Cup, beating Iran in the final Kabaddi, which The Economist described in a write-up of the World Cup as a cross between freestyle wrestling and rugby, has been played since ancient times in India in some forms, while the modern version of the game dates back to the early 20th century. It was actually a demonstration sport at Hitler's Olympics in Berlin in 1936. As Jamal Khawaja wrote in a recent article published on Deadspin, The launch of the Pro Kabaddi League in 2014 has transformed it from an antiquated pastime into a modern sporting spectacle on the Asian subcontinent, played in state-of-the-art stadiums and watched by hundreds of millions. At the World Cup, an American team took part in that spectacle, and the story of how they got there is really fascinating. We'll be joined by one of the players from the U.S. team in a minute. But with us first from Los Angeles is Jamal Hawaja, the journalist who wrote that story for Deadspin. Hey, Jamal. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. So what can you tell us about Kabaddi? It's a sport that most Americans are not familiar with. What are the rules of the game? What does it look like when you're watching it uh, play? Well, uh, sure. Imagine uh, some sort of indoor court, perhaps uh, uh, handball or basketball even. Um, so there's two teams. Um, and those teams are broken up into uh, blockers and raiders. Now, uh, 
very basically, uh, the function of the game is that the raiders from one team uh, sort of traversed into the opposing territory and tried to tag as many opposing players as possible and then make it back to their side uh, any way they can to sort of gather points. Um, so this goes on for, you know, uh, about 20 minutes. Uh can go up to uh, about 75 each. I'm going to blow out. This is probably very good quite a bit. Uh, you know, it's, it's fast-paced. It's visceral. Uh, there, are, there are some technical uh, secondary rules, but you don't even really need to know them. You can just watch these these large men bashing into each other, and it's quite entertaining, even if you know nothing of the rules. <laughs> to me, it kind of looks like the raider is sort of the a feather, and the five guys, or however many there are on the on the court, the defenders are like cats, and the raider taunts them, and the and the defenders sort of dart and go back and dodge. I mean, it's a really a it's a bizarre game, it's sort of like Red Rover almost. You know, you're Red running Rover. over and you got to get back to the other side. <laughs> The indoor version, I mean, this was an outdoor sport originally, and a mud pit was involved, and it's been sanitized. I mean, you play on sport court, and these guys are wearing, as you'd expect, sort of specific kind of shoes, and they, they look like amazing athletes, agility, speed, strength. Um, this transformation from this ancient sport to this very, very modern sport seems to me to be something really compelling. How does a sport take off in a country that has a national sport and has other sporting interests like India. Yeah, to me, this is perhaps one of the most fascinating things about the entire story is that um, <clears throat> the model of the PKL, the Pro Kabaddi League, which was launched in 24 and it's largely credited with revolutionizing the sport, uh, is based on that of the IPL, which is uh, nation's cricket league. Um, now, the IPL has become so popular over the past decade that it's threatened to topple the, the international hierarchy of cricket all over the world. Um, and uh, so they're trying to recreate that model by copying sort of American ideals of how teams are branded. You know, they all have sort of snappy names and school uniforms and that sort of thing. Uh, I think what they've realized is that the Indian public uh, has a strong thirst for homegrown sports and uh, that they found up all the works. And, you know, they had to sort of secret in their back pocket, this old game that they've been playing for thousands of years. Uh, I think Indians were as much for as surprised as we are to find out uh, that the sport would be so successful. Um, and you, you can sort of see um, the, the perhaps naivete or use of the, of the Kabaddi establishment in, in this World Cup. Uh, many of the teams, other than the top three or four, were, were, were all part-timers and novices. And there was a huge golfing class, class between the top teams and, and the newcomers like the U.S. Uh, there is the hand-holding aspect to Kabaddi, which we haven't uh, discussed as players try to tag the what you would call defensive team. The defensive team can probe out onto the court so long as they what maintain contact in the old tag rule of electricity. What is the strategic or tactical advantage to that? Well, that may be something you have to uh, ask Mr. Caldwell when he comes on the show, but... Um... <laughs> Uh, different teams have uh, different tactics. I think it's, it's interesting if you watch the American team's performance throughout the World Cup. Um, they definitely got more savvy as it went on uh, during their first game against Iran. Uh, you can see just by their stance and, and the formation on the court that, that they, they were quite experienced. From what I gather, they, they only practiced for two weeks. Um, you know, for a sport that's been around for 4,000 years, for people who've only practiced for two weeks to go and play on, on the biggest level, is. It's astounding, really. Um, but uh, basically, uh, the the razor can use any you know 
any method to get back over the line. Even if you tackle, you can wriggle, you can crawl, you can slither, you know. So uh, it's not just a matter of getting somebody down. It's a matter of getting somebody basically to the point where they can't move. So uh, having uh, a focal point of attack from both sides uh, with people holding hands is, uh, you know, assuming has a tactical advantage. Uh, I, I would claim to be a, a tactical master of Kabaddi yet. Maybe by the next World Cup. All right. So we'll talk to Kevin Caldwell in a second, but kind of last question for you. Just based on reading your story in Deadspin, it seemed like the World Cup, there's just this huge gap between India and Iran at the top and then other countries that are kind of just getting into the sport. Like how many of the teams are really like legit and sort of excellent players and then where where does the gap come like where is the fall off like how, how many players uh, in the world are like amazing kabaddi players uh, i think if you speak to some they'll say the only good you know yeah real team is india uh, but i think the real competitors were india and iran uh, south korea uh, i think overperformed they beat india in the first game um, which got a lot of people's attention but the, the issue is this um in in all over the world, uh, the traditional style of kabaddi is called circle style. It's played on the field. Um, and uh, the PKL style has changed the rules to fit it more into a modern you know, a, a television sport. So nobody prior to two years ago was really playing this version of the sport. So there's not a lot of am- amateur infrastructure for them to tap into to uh, get players for this World Cup tournament. So uh, other than the, the Indian and Iran team and a smattering of players from perhaps Kenya or South Korea, uh, most of the players in the World Cup hadn't been playing for more than a couple of years max. Um, I do believe there is some pretty strong potential for the future, though. I mean, it's a sport that requires absolutely no uh, equipment, uh, not a lot of investment, and, you know, it, it could give you some fast rewards. So I, I, I have high hopes for uh, well, sport maybe in a few years. All right, everybody should check out Jamal's piece in Deadspin. There's also another one um, that he wrote, in The Guardian. You can follow him on Twitter at Jamile K. Um, thank you so much for joining us and getting us situated in the Kabaddi universe. Really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, guys. So joining us now is one of the players from the U.S. Uh, Kabaddi team who played in the World Cup in India. His name's Kevin Caldwell. He went to school for business. He makes uh, hip-hop music he, his athletic career is that he played football in high school. He's 31 years old, and he's now one of America's Kabaddi legends. Kevin, welcome <laughs> to the show. Oh, happy to be here. So this is – I don't even know where to begin because it's such a weird story. But why don't you tell us um, how you first heard about Kabaddi and when you heard about it, did you think it was real, or did you think someone was trying to scam you about trying okay. to get a free trip to India? <laughs> oh man, see, trust me, I, that is great. That was a. Gr- I knew it wasn't a scam because of my introduction. Um, I actually was out in Oregon with uh, the team manager, was Celestine Jones, who would come to become the team manager, and actually, she's also my uh, manager as an artist, and we were out there promoting my music and ran across a young lady uh, by the name of Guru Nam Atwal, uh, who actually participated in the World Cup a couple of years ago, and she came across the idea to us immediately. You know, that's how we got introduced to it. So um, I did a little bit of research. I kind of didn't think about it too much, but, you know, two weeks after her sending me some information, we kind of looked at it, me and Celestine, and thought it would be an opportunity we would want to pursue. 
So what did you think when you saw, like, did you look at, like, a video on YouTube? Did you, like, Google Kabaddi and read the Wikipedia entry? Like, what was what was your research? Well, well, basically, um, talking to Guru Nam, you know, she was telling me her experience of the sport, telling me it was pretty big in India, like, very huge, kind of like American baseball here. Uh, and kind of just, we had conversation, random conversations. She sent me a YouTube link, and I didn't look at it. It was in my phone for about two weeks, but when I did, I, I can tell you, um, that, that that was my selling point. That sold me, and I think that's what sold other people when they actually got to see the sport. It was physical. It looked kind of crazy. Didn't understand what was going on, but people were jumping all over the place, jumping people, just wrestling them, throwing them down. It just looked really combative, so I was into it. And then how do we get from you watching a video to having enough players to go play in the World Cup? What, what what brought all of you guys together, and, and how, what was the connection? It was a destiny, man. It was destiny because <laughs> it was a crazy process that you couldn't have planned at all. Um, it, so I, I guess I can say it started in Oregon um, when, when we were we heard of the opportunity, and Guru Nam told me that she knew a guy who was organizing the USA team by the name of Mohinder Singh, uh, and he's in New York. He runs the Punjabi uh, Sports Association or something like that. And uh, we contacted him. I let him know, hey, this sports looks interested. I was a man of opportunity. I mean, you got to know, I was selling CDs and promoting my artistry. And uh, as a young man, African-American descent, I'm ready to go anywhere. I'm ready to travel the world and see what it looks like. So when I finally saw the sport, I wanted to test to see if this thing was real. So I told her to get him on the phone, let me see if, if, if we can speak to him, you know, just to test her to see if this thing's real. Hey, she picked up the phone, called him. Um, we had a quick conversation. I told him I was ready to play the sport. I oversold myself, you know. I told him I was ready to play. I was ready to do everything that it took. Uh, I, 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 I told him we can do whatever it took because um, I was ready for the opportunity. It sounded crazy to me. And, Mike, do you want to go? Yeah, but but joining okay from ideation to team with uniforms and uh, practicing together that seems like uh, a big step. Take me through that. Okay, now that step was actually crazy. Um, once he actually did express an interest of working together, uh, I noticed I was the first player, and I asked him when was the tournament, and he was like, "Hey, it's two months from now." I was like, wow. So we're going to be playing a professional team, <laughs> professional teams from all over the world. Two months from now, we've never even practiced it. People don't even know what I'm saying. I'm saying kabaddi. They're saying kahaki, kawadi, kaflak. What? Well, look, in fairness, you had watched a YouTube video. You had, you had watched it on your phone at that point. So you were basically an expert. Right, right. And you had ins with the Punjabi Sports Association or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so to get to there, to get to the jerseys, man, I actually just had to link up with somebody who knew better than me on how to organize young men, and that was Celestine Jones. Uh, she, we already been working together. Um, I tried to, we tried to put a team together in Oregon, um, but it really wasn't working. I mean, uh, we didn't have too much to, evidence to prove that this thing was legitimate or real or how big it was going to be. They didn't know we were going to be on ESPN3. I mean, we didn't even know. Um, so I couldn't really sell it but that youtube video is there so i guess she went and tapped into her network down in florida you know being a florida and then alumni and she was able to get a team together in a matter of a couple weeks okay so you guys yeah. practice for a little bit you go over to india just tell us like what is the first game like you're out there oh. 
you're playing like real professional dudes. You're like in the on the court. The, the crowd is there. Like, are you just like, <laughs> are you scared at, at your mind? Do you know what's going on? Like, walk us through well, that. Actually, I remember very vividly the first game. The first, the first game we were amped, man. We were excited. I mean, we had just jumped off the plane less than a day. I mean, we're we're in America. You know, we're all just like independent artists and independent entrepreneurs, and you know, nobody really knows about us on a large scale. We get there as soon as we hop off the plane. Everybody's jumping on us, asking for pictures. We the celebrities. They have uh, posters up in the airport. I mean, we saw that this thing was way bigger than we thought. This was like huge. So we get over there, um, and we just get bombarded by like fans of Kabaddi, and they show us a lot of love. We get to the hotel. Um, we, we, we have like three or four hours to sleep, wake up the next day and we get our jerseys and everything. And it just looks so sweet. I mean, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) we were amazed. We were amazed that the jerseys were that good. We didn't know the production was going to be that good, but when we actually got there, uh, it was our first actual time playing on a mat and it was our first actual time scrimmaging against any team. And we were up against Iran, which is, came out to be the second best team in the world. So you had never actually played a game against another team before? No, we, like, up in, in America, we practiced in Jacksonville for, you know, span of two weeks to a month or so, uh, two weeks without a Kabaddi coach. The other two weeks, you know, a guy flew in, and we had a good coach come in from India, taught us a couple things, but we didn't have the opportunity to play against anyone else but ourselves. We didn't have the opportunity, really. Um, we, we, it was just, it was just uh, very interesting. <laughs> so did you, did you even know the rules, Kevin, at this point? Were you comfortable honestly, with the honestly, rules? Honestly, if you watch that first game, how about you watch the whole first match and you tell me, did we know the rules? <laughs> <laughs> the thing about Kabaddi, though, when you do watch a match, and I watch, that's the match I watched, it's got speed, it's got agility, it's got contact, it's got tactics. This is another oh, one yeah. of those sports that Americans should crush at. Hey, actually, we will dominate that, man, but we didn't know the rules, man. <laughs> we didn't have any defensive tactics. We didn't know the tactic of a Raider. We've never got trained that stuff. I mean, this was 14, 15 guys that weren't even working out three times a week before we got together. And then we get together, and we got to run miles and, you know, become this elite group of Kabaddiists. You know, it was interesting. Your, your qualification was that you had uh, the time and availability to go to India. Yeah. Our qualification that we was ready. We were crazy enough to say yes. <laughs> we were crazy enough to just take ourselves and throw ourselves in a foreign country that we didn't know if they were liking Americans. We didn't know what was going on there. Uh, we didn't even have too many assurances, didn't have any insurance. Uh, it was crazy. But it seems like the crowds loved you. And to be fair, you oh, guys, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the final scores. You guys did all right. 52 to 15 against Iran, yeah. 45-19 to Japan, all right, 75-29 against Poland. That must have been a little disappointing. And then wow. 69-22 to Thailand and 74-19 to Kenya. I got to say, the fact that you scored points is impressive. <laughs> oh, yeah. People were getting buckets, man. Shout out to a lot of people who were getting buckets. D-Black, Kush, uh, the, the captain was getting buckets. We call I call them buckets, you know, referring to basketball. But their sure. points, they were yeah. going um, – Actually, it was very interesting. You just got to know. We're guys, we didn't even really know the sport at all. We were learning the rules as the days went on. Um, our first time even seeing another player of Kabaddi was on the mat against Iran, <laughs> life camera action. And we were we were so pumped before this match, man. You should have 
hey, you would have thought we were going to come out here and destroy these boys. <laughs> Let me ask you a couple questions. The idea of branding yourself and giving yourself XFL-type nicknames such that you're the uh, he-hate-me-of-Kabaddi, uh, where did that come from? Well, actually, it's just a culture. It's an American culture, young uh, hip-hop culture. Uh, we All of us, you know, like Kevin Hustle, right? That's yep. what you can call me. That's what you can refer to me as. That's the people who know me refer to me as. Uh, that's my hip-hop alias when I'm on the mic. Hey, and I felt like it would be great to be on the back of my jersey. And, uh, you know, how cool is that? You know, it's a sport that embraced, you know, our, our requests, and everyone was able to refer to themselves as they wanted to be referred to. Now, you were representing our country. So was there, okay, a couple questions. Did any members of the team, is it the case that they hadn't uh, ever traveled internationally before? That's one question. The other was, so you come against Iran. If you guys get in a fight, this could be an international incident. What do you do to discuss or think about that? Well, I can tell you that's a great thing about this sport of Kabaddi. And to answer the first question, there was like, hey, 99% 99% of the players had to get a passport before we went, you know, so that should answer the question of have we traveled. Um, and other than that, I, I say as far as playing Iran, man, look, the sport of Kabaddi is extremely competitive. These brothers are athletic all around the world playing this sport. The ones who play it a lot, you know, in, in India, Pakistan, Korea, and places like this throughout China, they're athletic. But the, the nature of the sport is one of peace. It's one of humility. It's one in whereas when you get tagged, it's expected of you to raise your hand and say it before the referee does. You know, in Kabaddi, what you see a lot of time is if a Raider comes in and he's on the pursuit and he tags a, an opponent, the opponent will be quick to, you know, raise his hand or even, you know, approach the Raider and tag him just to show, hey, yeah, you did tag me. You know, so the sport naturally in, in the character of it had you know, ways for us to interact peacefully and harmoniously. And the other part of the sport that's intriguing is that when you are the Raider, you're supposed to not breathe, right? You're supposed to keep saying kabaddi, 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 and not take a breath. Oh, oh, yes. It's based upon, uh, that's a good point. It's based upon, you know, Eastern principles of meditation and uh, chanting. They call it a cant. It's called a kabaddi cant. Uh, one of the principles of it is as the Raider is going over to to approach the defense, he has to consistently keep his cant. Now, it doesn't have to be one long breath. It just has to be a continuous, uh, repetitive uh, mantra. So, kabaddi, 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 kabaddi. You have to say that consistently as you as you uh, go to tag a defender and get back. And the moment where you lose that cant, you're done. You this get must, kicked out. This must have been it's hard over. for an American where the instinct as soon as you make the tag is to yell, you're it! yeah hey you know it was fun man i gotta tell you uh all the players that were on the team uh all of the players that were on the team they definitely sacrificed to get here they definitely worked very hard and one thing that i know is that we were all learning we were all learning so i just have to say real quick thanks to ben marcellus devin anderson denmar ryan you know he's uh wonder bread the only caucasian guy who was on the team Paul Dykes, Kip, Dillian Banks, who's a uh, deep black, got a lot of buckets, Bismarck, Jamil Cush, and uh, Mark Taz, I just, and Dwayne. I just wanted to say that real quick, and Paul, because these brothers, man, they put their all out there. We knew we were at a, um, we, we had a handicap, but we, we tried good. We tried well, and we pray that now we can come over here and start league, start a league, and really build a Kabaddi 
um, following because it's a great sport. Yeah, so I was actually going to say, kind of counter to what Mike said, I think that like having a hip-hop background would actually help with the chanting, that you guys would have a natural advantage there. <laughs> That's, true. That's true. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, <laughs> actually, actually, it's something that, that grows on you. It's something that grows on you because you got to think. I mean, you're raiding and you're in the mindset of, uh, like, tactics. Like, how can I get over here, touch the guy, touch two people and get back? I mean, there's so much on your mind and strategy that whether you're doing music all your life or not, you you got to practice that, man. It, it doesn't come easy. All right. So it's a, it's like a cliche to say any time you hear a crazy story that it should be a movie, but this is a case where it should definitely be a movie. Is this something that you guys talked about a lot? Um, and if so kind of what's the casting like do you have the whole thing kind of mapped out in your head well honestly i i say it like that like this uh going into this um uh, myself and celestine being the two key organizers of the team uh we did we have approached the team and we let them know that hey this is a unique experience that we should definitely um document to the best of our abilities and we should definitely make the most of. And after experiencing it, it definitely should and could be a movie. Uh, it seems to be uh, an issue thrown out there every time we speak to anyone in publication. We spoke to, you know, from ESPN to, you know, Hindu newspapers out in uh, India. And they all say, and it relates actually to the Jamaican bobsled team theory, which <laughs> we can see the, the resemblance there. So, hey, why not? You got the deal? Let's put it on the table. Let's look at it. <laughs> All right. Kevin Hustle, uh, living up to his name there. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck starting the U.S. Kabaddi League. And where can people check out your music? Well, actually, um, mainly, first and foremost, I'd like to say the Kabaddi League of America is actually um, something you could look forward to at KabaddiLeagueofAmerica.com uh, website should definitely be up within a week here uh we've been working on that very tough that and as far as my music hey uh you know same thing there kevin hustle you can find me kevinhustle.com that's something that's my hobby that i love doing and i pray that you like and i pray that you guys uh come to learn more about kabaddi hey a lot of things good in store for kabaddi in america all right thanks kevin appreciate it appreciate you guys for having us and uh get ready for a follow-up stories after the film can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it's time for After Balls. And, and Mike, you have a point that you'd like to make about the level of Kabaddi expertise in America. America's leading expert and leading player still do not really know why people hold hands in Kabaddi. Also, America's leading expert is actually British. <laughs> Stefan, what are some Kabaddi terms as we educate ourselves? I like the do or die raid. If you fail on your first two raids, if the, the raider fails, then the third raid is a do or die raid. And if you don't score a point, it's an out. And the other team gets a point. Wait, it's an out? That's really boring. I'm sorry. You'll be considered out. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't mean to. <laughs> You'll be considered Here's... out.
Based on based on that error that you just made, you are now America's leading kabaddi expert. <laughs> uh, Mike, what is your do or die read? So I was flying on Sunday and I didn't get to see most games. I saw like a quarter and then I saw the summary and I was surprised to see that the Raiders and Buccaneers went into overtime. Uh, A couple clicks later, I came across this statistic and it led me to other statistics. I didn't come across the statistic that maybe you came across first. I just looked at, all right, well, why was it? Why were the Raiders and uh, Bucks taken to overtime? The Raiders outgained the Bucks 626 to 270 with a time of possession of 44 to 29, which is like, wait, that doesn't add up to 60. All right, they went into overtime. And then I'm like, the Raiders must have turned it over four or five times. No, they only turned it over once. I did not understand until I came across this 23-200, 23 penalties for 200 yards, the most penalties, the most penalty yards ever. And so this is what makes the uh, game go into overtime. But also, when you think about it, the statistics about total yards gained are a little misleading because if a running back runs for 10 yards, one play, then gets tackled behind the line of scrimmage for 10 yards, that's zero yards for the running back and zero net yards for the team. But if instead of being tackled for a loss, if it's a 10-yard penalty, it just it still shows up as that gain. Also, they don't break it down for offense and defense, so we can't necessarily say that the 600-plus, uh, well, we can, I just don't have the stats that all the uh, 600 plus yards the Raiders gained on offense subtract 200 of those. And it also depresses Tampa Bay's totals because they can't be credited with yards gained on offense if those yards are being uh, gained on penalties. That said, the Raiders had 12 men on the field twice. And it's still kind of unfathomable how the game went into overtime. Now, there weren't too many pass interference penalties in this game, but that is the that is the penalty that I've been looking at the most. And so far this year, there's a website called NFLPenalties.com. It's really good and really thorough. And so far this year, I don't think they have yesterday's stats up there. There have been 9.68 pass interference penalty yards a game or 0.6 flags a game. And maybe it doesn't seem that much, but last year there were 0.46 flags a game and the year before that 0.49 flags a game and the yards have ticked up too. In fact, the yards are about two and a half yards more per game than in 2014. And it's to the point where if... Uh, penalty yards accepted for pass interference were a receiver on the Oakland Raiders, that receiver would be tied, yes, with Jalen Richard as the sixth leading receiver on the team. If pass interference yards accepted were a receiver on the Green Bay Packers, it would be the fourth leading receiver on the Packers. Pass interference, a gigantic penalty, oftentimes for a tiny, tiny touch. Stefan Fatsis, what is your do-or-die raid? Well, Kaylia Ojai won an NCAA Women's Soccer Championship at North Carolina. She was the number two pick in the uh, National Women's Soccer League draft a couple years ago. She has scored 17 goals in 60 games for the Houston Dash. She's dealt with legal blindness in one eye since early childhood and has played for U.S. national teams since the age of 13. And she made her debut for the senior national team last week against Switzerland and scored just 48 seconds after stepping onto the field. But now, finally, Ojai has done something newsworthy. Oh, my God, guys. She confirmed that she's dating J.J. Watt. TMZ has the all-caps headline, J.J. Watt dating hot pro soccer star. 
J.J. Watt, J.J. Watt, the injured player for the American football team, the Houston Texans, that J.J. Watt. The Houston Chronicle has some details. Yet another gorgeous woman has been romantically linked to Texans superstar J.J. Watt. But this time, the rumor is true, apparently. That's what it says. The newspaper helpfully. I like that. The rumor is true, apparently. apparently. The newspaper helpfully included a photo of Ojai wearing a bikini, holding a puppy. (laughs) (laughs) But in fairness, the local paper added that, quote, Ojai is much more than a pretty face. She has just been named to the roster of the women's national soccer team. That was the last paragraph of that story, though. So we need some more context. And the sports gossip blog, Therese Owens, is just the source. Quote, J.J. Watt is dating teammates' sister-in-law, exclamation point, exclamation point. That's right. Kaylia Ojai's sister is married to American football player Brian Cushing, who once was suspended from the NFL after testing positive for a fertility drug, but claimed that he actually suffered from, quote, overtrained athlete syndrome. But enough about Cushing. Let's Wait, can, learn- I, can we stop on that yeah. a second? That's like the athlete equivalent of saying in a job interview that your worst quality is that you work too hard. Yeah. I've overtrained athlete syndrome. Overtrained athlete syndrome. All right, but enough about Brian Cushing. Let's learn some more about Kaylia Ojai. Therese Owens notes that she's right up J.J. Watt's alley. She's in shape and she's blonde. <sighs> EliteDaily.com adds that she's sexy. And Bro Bible, my source, it is one of my bookmarks, Bro Bible, explains that one of Ojai's most important qualities is this, how she will care for Watt during his recovery from back surgery. Quote, shitty news for one of the best in the game, but luckily he will have quite the lady nurse him back to health. Yes, lucky for J.J. Watt that he has found a member of the female species to attend to all of his needs. But let's keep our fingers crossed, because while Ojai spilled the beans on a podcast... Watt has not yet commented, quote, he's usually tight-lipped about his relationship status, the Chronicle reports, noting that he's been linked in the past to Caroline Wozniacki and Kate Hudson, quote, and there's no sign of Ojai on his Instagram or Twitter pages. I mean, it really is tough for J.J. Watt. Quote, I think it's having the whole world watch your every move and any female you're seen with is automatically your girlfriend, Watt says. Bringing a girl into this life and the scrutiny and the criticism that comes with it, no matter how perfect the girl is, people are going to rip her to shreds because that's the social media world we live in today. Yeah, it really sucks for females and girls who are associated with J.J. Watt, injured football player. Maybe someday J.J. Watt will date a woman. In the meantime, thank God for Bro Bible, which invites us to, quote, check out Kaylia Ojai and keep in mind she is and always has been a better athlete than you. No way, fucking Bro Bible. There's no way that a girl female is a better athlete than us. Kudos, by the way, to the soccer site What a Howler, which was alerted to this story just as I was from a Houston Chronicle post titled, 13 Things to Know About J.J. Watt's New Girlfriend. What a Howler editor David Rudin published a companion piece, Seven Things to Know About Kaylia Ojai's New Boyfriend, number one of which is, quote, his mother is an accomplished businesswoman. <laughs> Josh, what's your do or die raid? The big story of the NFL season so far has been the decline of television ratings, which we talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. The numbers through last weekend courtesy of Michael Mulvihill of Fox Sports, are that the afternoon regional games on Fox are down 1% from 2015. The afternoon regional games on CBS are down 9%. 
And the primetime games, Thursday night football down 18%, Sunday night football down 19%, and Monday night football down 24%. So no wonder a guy from Fox Sports was sharing those numbers. Consider the source, but uh, I have no reason to believe those numbers are not accurate. Um, So let's bracket that for a second, the declining ratings. Another NFL story that's made news this month was the league banning teams from posting highlights on social media during games, which led the Browns and Eagles to mock the NFL by recreating plays using electric football dudes. And NFL story number three that is in the news is the continued enforcement of amazingly dumb celebration rules. The dumbest slash most egregious example came when Vernon Davis of Washington was fined $12,000 for shooting a football like a basketball after he scored a touchdown. That's a $12,000 fine. That was called unsportsmanlike conduct as well. Uh, Other examples include Antonio Brown being fined $24,000 for twerking and Josh Norman, also of Washington, getting fined $10,000 for miming shooting a bow and arrow. On the celebration stuff, Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post quoted Keyshawn Johnson in her column uh, about celebration and domestic violence and the NFL's disparate treatment of them um, said, so this is Johnson saying, uh, I just feel like you got a bunch of old, stale people in the league office who've been there for a while and they got their set of rules. Football is a traditional old man's sport. In the NF- in the NBA, you see a lot more turnover and ownership but in the NFL, everything passes down generationally. It's a good old boy network. Okay, I think that is kind of right, but it's not exactly right. If you connect all three of these stories, the focus on linear television. So I think that the reason all these ratings are down is the NFL has expanded Thursday night games, Sunday night games, Monday night games. They're just all of these different um, blocks of network television. And the NFL is kind of diluting uh, its product. Some of these games are just not as good to watch. And so the the ratings go down. So you have that, the focus on linear television. You have the tight control of social media. And you also have the policing of celebrations. So in all those things, I think you see a business that's trying to protect what is pro- projected to be more than $13 billion in revenue this year. But I also see a corporation that's trying to appeal to a specific customer base. So people just talk about the owners like, oh, they're like old white people. Of course, they're doing that. But they're trying to appeal to the people that watch NFL games. They're not um, unbelievably good, accurate demographics about the fans of sports leagues. The best that I was able to find, though, was this Nielsen year in sports media report. This is published in 2014. It's about the year 2013. The demographics of NFL fans, they're older and they're whiter than the fans of other sports leagues. 65% male, 71% of NFL fans, according to Nielsen, are 35 and older, 77% white, 15% black, 8% Hispanic. Now compare that to the NBA. 55% as compared to 71% are 35 and older. 45% of NBA fans are black, 40% white, 12% Hispanic. Neither of these leagues matches up really perfectly with the demographics of the U.S. as a whole. NFL fans are whiter than the U.S. as a whole. Sli- know, but slightly blacker, slightly blacker also. It's all in the Hispanic Slightly market. blacker. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, what did I say? 77% white, um, according to Nielsen for the NFL. 
The U.S. is 63.7% non-Hispanic white. And the NBA fan base is much uh, blacker than the U.S. population as a whole, which is around 12%. And so if you look at what the NBA has done, and it's, you know, Adam Silver is seen as this liberal guy and, you know, supporter of liberal causes. They have a float and, you know, the pride parade in New York. Um, They find fans, you know, on social media. And every night, if you follow uh, people on Twitter who are into sports, you're more likely to see NBA highlights on Vine or wherever than on than highlights of any other sport. Um, the NBA doesn't seem to give a shit about celebrations. You can look at it as like, this is just what the commissioner believes and the owner believe. But you can also look at it as marketing. And this is what the fans of the NBA want. And with the NFL, you can also look at it as marketing, and they're being smart about what their whiter, older, more conservative audience wants. Now, what's that audience going to be and what's it going to look like in 10 years as the demographics of America change? You know, the NFL is making a lot more money than the NBA is now, but it seems like maybe the NBA is better positioned for, you know, the future of what the sports consuming public is going to want and what the future of the sports consuming public is going to be demographically. Isn't the answer to that though, Josh, that leagues can have multiple marketing strategies and that they should be trying to appeal to fans that maybe aren't going to sit through a three and a half hour game, but want to consume the sport in a different way, whether that's playing fantasy or just watching and, and, and getting results on Twitter or other social media. Yeah, and I think the NBA has a more versatile strategy, and I think they are showing more recognition of the different ways in which fans watch games. And the NFL has this enormous business, and it has grown. It's not like they're protecting a shrinking business. This is not like a you know newspaper, you know, magnet Roger Goodell like trying to like fight against uh, you know people just deserting the league in droves, despite what the TV ratings might suggest, but. They don't seem to be kind of feeling the same pressure to diversify. They just have this massive, massive core business, and it seem, their behavior just feels more kind of protectionist than the behavior of the NBA, to me. Yeah, and I think leagues can decide whether to or not to get their knickers in a twist or not, and to enforce conformity for whatever reasons they think conformity needs to be enforced, and the NFL does enforce conformity, and the NBA doesn't. And they have their reasons, but these are the consequences of those decisions. All right. We love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Members Elmo Beatty, thanks for listening. And we've got some Kevin Hustle, American Kabaddi superstar, to play you out. Saying, patient.
it saved me Just a few things to forget about my yesterdays Hustling, striving, struggling, thriving Just a few things, hustle putting on this resume Praying, saying, patience, save me Just a few things to forget